This program this morning is brought to you by Inside Meditation and Karuna Buddhist Vihara. So I feel very fortunate to share this time with you all and um, especially to have KBV and Aya Santusika and Aya Chittananda be partners in this crime of uh, knowledge. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, although I'm sure many of you do, that Aya Santusika is an ordained bhikkhuni in the Theravada Thai Thai Forest Monastery tradition. She was ordained in 2012, and shortly after that, she founded the Karuna Buddhist Vihara. Um, subsequently, she and Aya Chittananda are living in a hermitage in the Santa Cruz Mountains. This is within the last 12 months, I think, that this happened, or maybe a little longer than that, but very recently. So welcome all, and thank you especially um, to Aya Santusica. Thank you. It's really nice to see all of you here. I, I know that this is a challenging topic, um, the state of our of our planet, of our environment. And we just sent out a newsletter to our community and in it I wrote that we will be looking at this from a place of love and goodness. And so I hope that uh, we can maintain that um, perspective on everything that we discussed today. And I think what I'll do is start by sharing some thoughts, uh, reflections on what we're experiencing now and uh, give some context for how we might um, go into a discussion about it. And also then after my initial comments, reflection, then we'll have a short guided meditation and then um, some uh, investigation and discussion. So I promised that I would talk about um, this, the state of things, and I'm not going to do that from a um, perspective of what the climate science is. Uh, I'm not going to do it from a political point of view. Um, and I'm really interested in a more emotional or psychological and certainly spiritual perspective. So how do we apply the Dhamma to this? And it starts out, of course, with looking at what we're experiencing. And we are experiencing climate change, and these incredibly huge wildfires that we've all been um, touched by in some way, and cataclysmic storms uh, that are happening on an um, much more um, frequent time scale and also uh, kind of the, the uh, enormity of them. You know, melting ice sheets, dying coral reefs, massive die-off of, of um, animal life and uh, extinction of species. And then, you know, there are, of course, other aspects to the environmental issues. 
but we also have some major changes happening in our society. Um, we've seen it, certainly an increase in, in violence and hatred that we're seeing not just in America, but in other places in the world also. <clears throat> and these are not, these factors are not unrelated. We have uh, an election coming up that many people are concerned about. And we have a pandemic and we have um, many more pandemics coming uh, across the world. If you kind of look at the history, um, you know, a, a pandemic would come maybe once a year in the past and now we'll have several and that um, phenomenon is increasing. So in some sense, perhaps the fear of losing our way of life is increasing and our concern for future generations. So these are all pretty sobering um, realities. And it's, you know, we can look at how our life has changed in the last eight months or 10 months. Um, I mean, we have our bags packed, um, ready to go all the time because fire season is still on. We don't know when the rain is gonna happen. It's a strong possibility that we're gonna have a very dry year. So that's one, you know, one way that we feel it every day. I'm kind of like, um, you know, there are my bags in my room ready to go. And, you know, of course the pandemic has really changed things for everyone. Um, something in our life is different. And it's not all negative. There are some great opportunities in this for increased generosity and kindness, for reflection on the nature of reality. And, and you know this. I mean, I've heard so many stories from people about the ways in which some of these conditions have brought us into a greater immediacy and uh, valuing of our life and also um, opportunities for practice that we otherwise would probably not really even acknowledge or notice. Just give me a second, technology. <laughs> so I was thinking about the ways in which various people respond or um, deal with all of this. And for some people, you really see kind of a, an effort to maintain hope, especially around the environmental issues, really strong, you know, look, we can really turn this around. We can engineer our way out of this. We have the technology, we need to apply it. We just have to get the right government. We have to get the right policies. Uh, we can switch over to renewable energy. Uh, we can, um, you know, do the things that are needed to stall climate change and then reverse it. And now, of course, what we're seeing our actual studies that come out saying 
it's not going to be so easy as to just switch from a fossil fuel economy to a green economy. We're going to have to shrink the economy. And that's where we start to get uncomfortable, <clears throat> perhaps, because it means that we may not be able to live exactly the way we are now with just a different source of energy, that we may need to make some tough choices and learn how to do with less. Now, sometimes <clears throat> when you talk about shrinking the economy, people go, like, how do you even do that? And um, many of you might know some ways that that can happen and that it's, again, not all bad. Um, <laughs> kind of representing a way of life that really embraces simplicity <clears throat> and how much freer one can feel when we actually are able to simplify and um, and do with less and make less of a footprint on our environment and on our culture, that there are some real positives to that. So being hopeful and maintaining that hope is one of the one of the ways people respond to this whole um, array of challenges. But there are those who would say, this doesn't look very hopeful, that seems unrealistic. And one of them is actually, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a monk in our tradition named Bhante Sujato, and some of you might know him. Um, he came to IMC last year talking about Sutta Central and translating large portions of the, of the Pali Canon and making that available for free for everyone. And uh, he's, um, he's giving a series right now that I, I put the link in the chat window right at the top. Uh, it's, it's called Life Hacks. Oh, let me think. Hold on a second. Get the title right. It's on the chat window. But it's called... Um, Life hacks for the end of the world. So his, his uh, position is, I don't have hope. People have been telling me what we have to do all my life, and it's not happening. And things are just getting worse. However, he doesn't go to the other side, which is um, despair. You know, it's, um, you know, that's another way to respond. Some people just despair. They give up. It's all going down. It's all going bad. And sometimes they'll say, I just may as well live it up and use as many resources as I want because there's nothing that can be done. Certainly, Bhante Sujato doesn't take that position. He actually, he's doing a four-part series, and three parts have already been done. And they were on life, love, and joy. And tomorrow morning is going to be the final um, talk in this series, and it's going to be on acceptance. And so if you want to, you can follow the link in the chat window and sign up for tomorrow's course. It is at 6 a.m. because um, you know, it's, it's being uh, attended by people all over the world. And he has a lot of interesting things to say. So you might want to do that. And it's also, you know, 
these ways of thinking come from the Dhamma. And I'm going to talk about the Dhamma with regard to each of these ways that people kind of come to this problem, whether it's hope or despair or denial, which we see, you know, people actually denying that climate change is happening. Um, and, um, of course, and Bhante Sujato points out an interesting relationship between climate den deniers and this increase in um, hatred and violence, that it's coming from the same group. And it's, it's interesting because it's like, look at what happens when we suppress reality, the truth, and how funny things happen in us. Um, with regard to that, you know, that's a, an interesting area of uh, reflection. I think. Hi, uh, um, excuse yeah. me. Uh, excuse me a moment. Um, there are people reporting in the chat that they have problem with the volume. I'm not sure if there's okay. anything else you can. I do can about fix that. that. Sorry. Okay. I is there anything I should repeat? Um, Maybe not. Okay. I don't. I don't know, but um, there's also a request for reposting because for pe some people it didn't. Some people arrived late. It didn't arrive in. They didn't get it in the chat. So maybe later we can repost the link. Oh, okay. So uh, let me see if I can just do that right now. Yes, it's there again. I thought you'd be able to scroll up in the chat window, but maybe that doesn't happen. Well, we're so, learning, but thank yeah. you. For, yeah, thank you for the volume. That, that that's better. Thank you I, for for letting me know. Yes. So, um, I'll just go briefly. Like when when you think about how people respond to this situation we're in, and you see the hope, the despair, the denial. I think there's another one, which is kind of like, well, I have my practice. I'm practicing for Nibbana. I'm not intending to come back to this planet. It's fine. And I would, rec I would suggest that that's probably some form of spiritual bypassing. Maybe not, but I think the likelihood is, is there. Um, Bande Sujato in his series at one point said, uh, if you're not worried about what's happening, either you're in denial or you're an arahant. And statistically, it's probably the case <laughs> that there may be some denial there. So these are things that are good to look at. And um, when you look at the Dhamma as in, in light of these different ways of relating to our situation, then hope, we certainly want to see things as they are and not turn away and not gloss it over and recognize, you know, what are the realities here? But then of course, to maintain that, that buoyancy, that energy that brings about goodness and kindness and um, uh, effort to make things better. And that even though we don't know what the outcome will be, which is an important reflection 
everything's uncertain. It's always uncertain. We don't know individually if we're going to be here this afternoon. This is just truth. And so we don't know how things are going to turn out. We don't really know what's going to happen. Reminding ourselves of this truth of the Dhamma and maintaining a willingness to continue to do what's good. Um, in terms of despair, when you look at the Dhamma, one of the things that I believe is true is that when we get to the point in our practice where we've actually entered the stream, meaning there's complete faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the enlightened Sangha, we know for without a doubt that this body and the other khandas are not self, that we're no longer engaged in empty rituals that we think will protect us. This is stream entry. Once the mind comes to that level of depth in the practice, despair isn't pos possible anymore. There's no falling back into that kind of darkness, which is helpful to know. And that we have this opportunity to develop as long as we're breathing, as long as we're alive. So we can cherish that and make an effort. And then this idea of practicing for Nibbana, that's also incredibly supportive because we gain all along the way the ability to bring in the the divine abidings, you know, loving kindness, love, um, compassion, joy, equanimity. And this is so important in addressing the times that we're in. This is the key, I think. We really need to and can, we can apply this no matter what's happening. And in fact, under the circumstances where there's threat and the struggle and suffering, it's even more, uh, there's more opportunity than ever to bring these practices to the fore and really, um, really cultivate them. So this is kind of my sense as I look at the different ways, and you might know of other ways that people are holding this, uh, this set of conditions that we're experiencing but the real question, I think, is how do we want to face this? How do we want to live our lives in this context? And one of the things that I think we can do, of course, the first thing is related to the first noble truth, that we're actually present with things. We're present with the external reality, like I've been talking about, but we're also present with our internal reality, that we are actually accepting and acknowledging whatever feelings arise, regardless if it's fear, anger, anxiety, um, whatever is there, that we bring a sense of compassion and caring to that. And we're willing to, to face it and be, be with it. If we suppress it, um, it goes underground and then comes out in, in destructive ways oftentimes, or at least funny ways. And if we, we also don't want to get caught up in it and believe in it, we don't have to buy into it or act from it. 
on. Of course, this is like the, the groundwork of the practice. Whatever happens, we still have, while we're alive, we still have choices. And this is so much a part of the Dhamma that we have the responsibility for our own awakening. We have the responsibility for how we respond to whatever is happening. And if we respond with the, the path, with the way that we walk the path of Dhamma, we've got this whole array of, of tools, of skills, and, you know, even if you look at, let's say, like I was talking about stream entry earlier, practicing for stream entry or experiencing it and living from that place, or just looking at something like the seven factors of enlightenment, really using mindfulness, Dhamma investigation, the energy that comes from that, the joy that comes from that, being able to really bring tranquility to the body and mind and stillness um, in our concentration and then equanimity. And if you look at these factors and how they develop and how we can build on each one on the next, build the next one on the previous one and really see that this is something that's, it's like, um, it's an incredibly powerful way to be able to see what's happening in the world in context. You know, this is a different kind of context then for everything that's going on around us, where we have the ability to be present and, and responsive in a very effective way. So one of the things that's important to do, I think, with regard to this, is to really get clear about our values. You know, what do we really value? If we really value life, then I think we, to act on those, that value, maybe we do something like eat less meat, or maybe we become more aware of how we use resources that affects the lives of living beings on this planet? Like, do I really need this thing if it has an impact on the, uh, the living beings, the animals or people on this planet? And so, you know, this is the kind of reflection that can be helpful, I think. Um, valuing valuing life, valuing love? How do I respond to all of this stuff that's going on in our political sphere from a place of love? How do I respond if my if one of my core values is morality? You know, it's like these are really important things to look at. And there are, and there are of course others. So what do I really value? What do I place as a priority that's higher than other things that might um, be easier or more attractive 
in the moment, but not over the long term, like comfort. Like we may place a high priority on being comfortable. And yet that may not be the most important thing to us after all. So it's, I think this is all relevant to how we relate at, to the world and to each other and also how we manage more than manage how we recognize our own ability and personal power with regard to addressing what's going on. You know, this idea that I have 100% responsibility for how I experience this life and everything in it. I can change how I see it, how I work with it. And in a way that my values are maintained and that no matter what comes, I'm ready in a sense to maintain those values and feel confident and good in myself with how I'm operating in the world. So I, I think I'm going to close my reflection there and invite you to meditate. And we'll just take some time to sit with this. And I'm hoping and I imagine that some um, this, this has triggered or invited some ideas and reflections of your own. And then we'll have a chance to discuss that after the meditation. So find a comfortable position for sitting. I will try not to use my going to sleep voice. And um, just take a couple of long breaths. Make sure your spine is straight, but not rigid, not tight. I'm going to meditate for about 30 minutes. So you want to be comfortable. Use your breathing as an opportunity to relax, to let go of any tension in your shoulders or around your eyes, your jaw. your hands, your back, your belly, 
or your legs. And just with each breath, as you, as you breathe out, let go a little bit more. And my favorite meditation object is dead breath and following some collection of the instructions and mindfulness of in and out breathing. This is an incredibly powerful and flexible model, the most detailed instructions the Buddha gave for meditation. So it begins with being aware that you're breathing in and being aware that you're breathing out. And sometimes when the mind is very busy, it's even helpful to let those words come to mind when breathing in and breathing out. The in-breath and the out-breath really provide a, a stable support for our focus, for our, for our calm. It's like having two posts that you can hold on to to steady yourself. And then before the mind gets bored with these two simple supports, we hold on to them by knowing that we're breathing in and knowing that we're breathing out, but perhaps not thinking about it, just feeling it. So you know it's an in-breath because you feel the breath coming in and what that's like for the body. And you know it's an out-breath because you feel what it's like for our breath to go out. And then we bring to our attention the whole body. So as we're aware, whether we're breathing in or breathing out, we're also present and aware of the whole body, taking in the body as a whole. And this is really the energy in the body, in and around the body, that is informed or infused by the breath. In the Thai tradition, the, the breath is often referred to as the breath energy. This is prana, pana. It's the energy that comes along with the breathing.
And that energy comes in and can fill the whole body and even around it. The, the skin is not really a barrier. Form is not a barrier. When we're talking about energy. We're breathing in, we're breathing out, and we're feeling the expansiveness of this energy around and in through the body. And the more closely we stay connected with the in-breath and the out-breath, the more we may feel Sensations related to this breath energy, like tingling or warmth. Sometimes it feels like there are ants crawling on your skin. Sometimes it feels like some part of the body swells. There are many different ways that energy can feel. But in general, there's a a feeling that's pleasant and joyful as we go more deeply into this spiritual experience. It's what's called an unworldly pleasant feeling coming from tuning in, tuning into the spiritual energy. So the Buddha said, be sensitive to the whole body. And then invite all the body bodily processes to become calm. This means we are letting go of any tension or tightness. We let go of trying. We just settle into a calm but present, alert attitude towards the in-breath, the out-breath, the whole body, and whatever sensations may be arising, we notice them, we encourage them, encouraging, encouraging any sense of that spiritual energy to spread throughout the body. It could be something very subtle, like the good feeling that comes with mindfulness. Or it could be something quite vibrant. But regardless of its intensity, it's still PT, which can be translated as rapture or joy. 
doesn't have to be mega fireworks. Those sensations in the body that tell us my body is relaxing. I'm tuning into a different level than the mere physical. And from here, the Buddha leads us to experiencing and noticing the experience of sukha, pleasant feeling, happiness. It's more subtle, more stable, but similar. And the PT and sukha can reside at, together at the same time in the body, in the mind. What's interesting about this is these are mental feelings, but we experience them in the body. They don't come from, you know, how your knee feels or even how your heart is beating. It comes from tuning into the spiritual dimension. which is where we find the jhanas, which is where we find the immaterial state, which is where we find the, the faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, which is where we find real joy and happiness. And we can have all of this happening, and yet the Buddha has not yet instructed us how to deal with the mind. So when he does, he says, notice the activity in the mind. First, you see it, and then you invite it to become calm. So what are the thoughts? What are the patterns? that are right there, observable now. And the invitation to become calm is another way of letting go. Letting go of thinking, letting go of the thoughts. Doesn't mean thinking will stop at this point necessarily but it can slow down, become less of an issue. Just relaxing more in the mind. So tranquility of the body and tranquility of the mind as a factor of enlightenment.
And once the mind becomes more calm, then the Buddha instructs us to really look at the mind itself, not the activity in it or the thoughts going through it, but what is the state or mood of the mind? What does the wallpaper in the mind look like right now? And he gave us some ideas, you know, is this a mind affected by greed or not? Is this a mind affected by hatred or aversion or not? Is this mind confused or dull? Or is it bright? Is it expansive? Now, what is the state of this mind? And we don't have to put a word to it or a label. We can just feel it, experience it by putting our attention there. And then whatever it is, the Buddha says, brighten. Brighten it up some more. Gladden the mind. Bring more happiness in. And this kind of happiness comes from reflecting on the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, on your own morality, on your generosity, maybe reflecting upon how you have full faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Maybe putting your attention on the progress that's been made in your practice, the things that used to be issues that have fallen away, the things that you used to engage in that actually were an impediment to joy and happiness and goodness that have fallen away. or anything else that you can bring into the mind to lift it up. Turn up the brightness, turn up the happiness. Smile. And once the mind is happy, it's easy to go into stillness. So this is where I'm going to stop talking and give us all a chance to really let go into lucid calm to whatever degree that's available at this moment.
once we've had an opportunity to come to some level of stillness in the mind, then the Buddha suggests that we use that state of mind, that stillness, as an opportunity to reflect upon the Dhamma, the investigation that he suggests is impermanence, the fading away of desire and interest in sensuality, the cessation of suffering. renunciation, real letting go. Today, for our purposes, let's put it in the context of our values. What do you really value? What comes to the top of the list for you of what's really important? particularly in terms of your character, qualities that you want to develop. The standards by which you want to live your life. the ways in which you want to respond to the world, to people, to circumstances. The attitudes you want to maintain throughout the changes that are inevitable in samsara.
Okay. So now that we've had a chance to settle and reflect a little bit, and there's been a lot um, kind of brought to the surface around this, hopefully, I'd like to invite you into small groups. We're going to have breakout groups. And I think and we make them um, probably groups of five uh, because I, I am going to, um, I know that for some people, as soon as you hear we're going to be talking in small groups, they go, oh, God, not that again. <laughs> and I want you to know that it's perfectly okay to just, when you get to your group, Say, I want to go back to the general meeting and just come back to the general meeting. And I am going to just come back to the general meeting myself. And we can talk or we can just sit quietly or whatever you like. Um, but, you know, just uh, so you have that option. And if we make um, them groups of five, then hopefully we will have... Um, you know, enough people left in each group that it's uh, useful and uh, not too much pressure. <laughs> if you're like me, it's like I, I'm happy to talk uh, like all the time, which is not necessarily a good thing, but <laughs> you're not maybe like that. So, so I'll turn it over to you, Anne, uh, if you want to sort of okay. get, get us into groups. So maybe about um, 15 minutes in a group? In the I was breakout? actually thinking 20. Could okay. we do 20 minutes? Yes. Because I think if there are five in the group, you get at least four minutes. Okay. And, um, so I wondered then when we come back, um, there would be time for questions of you. You know, I was sort of thinking people who came back into the main group could maybe be meditating, but you know, and maybe not get a jump on the whole conversation, but, you know, you, you'll be there. You'll decide what's right to do. Yeah. So um, 20 minutes. And um, so one of the ways that I have known the small groups work is for people to take it in turns. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you can hear me. Um, take it in turns, um, but just have brief a brief comment. Um not say everything you want to say because we'll go around several times in in a sort of spiral fashion so if i say something it may spark something for somebody else and that's sort of the way we build on a on our ideas so um i'm going to set up the groups we're going to hope this is going to work well and um groups of five for 20 minutes so um and I've added two questions to the chat because I'd like you to first go around in your group. Just say the one or two top things that you value. And then the second go around in your group, some ideas on how you can act on those values. So that's the, the suggestion for the topic. And it's in the chat window. Oh, I guess it didn't go to everyone. Let me see. Let me try that again. Send it out to everybody. Everyone in the meeting. Here it comes, just in case. 
you need to know. Uh, yeah, there you go. What do you value? How can you act on those values? All right, sorry, Ann. No, that's it. We got it. Thank you very much. And thank you for that sweet tool. Thank you. All right, see you shortly. I hope you have lots of questions and comments. We have a little more than 30 minutes, so it's a good opportunity to draw upon our collective wisdom and also our, our collective whatever confusion um, struggle and give each other a chance to benefit from mutual support. So who would like to start? You can report on things you said in the group and um, you can bring forward any questions or comments or complaints. Complaints are good sometimes. That brings out nuances of the Dhamma. <laughs> yes, Jerry. Um. Well, greetings from the uh, relative East Coast of North America, from Toronto, where it's um, right now about 38 degrees Celsius, uh, Fahrenheit. So uh, a little chillier than where you folks are. But uh, what I uh, was saying in the group was that uh, I, uh, my, uh, my values and our my religion is. Uh, kindness in my work. I'm a physician, and so in Toronto, and I, um, uh, it actually, uh, uh, I, I think that I have hope that uh, with biology, I've seen it that if you make changes, unlike physics, you may not see them right away, but they show up a week later, a month later, a year later. So every little bit counts. And I was relating that it was, uh, it reminded me climate change a little bit about like what we're going through with COVID that although 45% of people who have, get COVID will have no symptoms whatsoever, but the other 55% go from mild to moderate to severe, serious to critical. So what we do as individuals, um, with COVID uh, may not affect us, but it may affect someone three blocks away uh, critically. And so climate change has elements of the same, but although we may not, our own actions may not affect us so graphically, but it could affect another country, another city, another a different socioeconomic class uh, more dramatically. So we're all interrelated and if we all take some position that we are interrelated, then I think where there is hope that the the earth as a if you think of it as an organism will bounce back if people start to make changes. There is resilience. Yeah, thank you. 
and and as you so um, eloquently pointed out about this interrelationship, it's also true of coming generations. We may not feel like we're making such a big difference, but our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, they may really see a huge difference depending on what we do now. Yeah, thank you. And caring for them, caring for each other, caring for the people in another city, in another country. Um, this is part of our Dhamma. And it elevates our own hearts and our own minds. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome to raise your hand on the computer so we can take people in order or if you want to just unmute yourself and and jump in, that's also okay. I Santusika, you're the host again, so I think you can control the raised hands and such like. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Yes, Andy. Um, I think since mm, some years ago, I've been uh, really working with this fear uh, from climate change because I don't know. I think that to my generation, to youth and children nowadays, uh, they are getting involved in a lot of political issues that maybe they didn't used to in other times. And uh, maybe this pressure about you are the future of this world, so you have to fix everything we've done. And I'm like, okay, I don't know if that, going, that is going to be possible. And I don't know if we will have the tools to do it. But, uh, but at the same time, it's like, okay, how can, how can we work with this? Because I think there's a lot of good people in the world that really wants to do the right thing. But still, uh, as we know, like things are impermanent and uh, you know, the civilization as we know it is impermanent, countries are impermanent and stability, it is, no? So I was, uh, yesterday I was really inspired by reading the life uh, example of Deepa Ma, who was a lay woman, um, really inspiring and I was like okay if climate change will be my practice then climate change is my practice everything is practice to to reach the to reach Nibbana no so if it's going to be climate change it's going to be climate change if it's going to be uh, hurricanes and you know all these kind of things then hurricanes are my my practice so it doesn't matter um, if we can make to Uh, build the world, our monastery, and our bodies to be our meditation huts. And that way, everything's going to be okay. So, yeah, I think that's, like, the one thing that keeps me grounded with all these things. <laughs> Beautiful, Andy. Thank you. 
Yes. Sharanya. I, uh, this is really more of a question for you rather than me sharing. And okay. that is, I wanted to really uh, pick your brain about the intersection between values, gender roles, and culture. So when you read the Buddhist sutras, there's one sutra about the Buddha talking about the different kinds of wives, right? She's a friend, she's a mother, she's this, she's that. Mm -hmm. How does that uh, translate into today's world? Um, I guess in terms of uh, living by those values, particularly within the culture, but also balancing that out with um, with um, with personal goals, personal values, with uh, burnout and work-life balance. Okay, so first of all, that sutta, I, I want to explain a little of the way I interpret that. So as Sharanya said, the... The situation in that in that teaching that the Buddha, the situation the Buddha was in was he was visiting um, some lay supporters who invited him, probably invited him for the meal. And the daughter-in-law um, that had recently married into the family was from a wealthy family and uh, she did not like the way she was being treated. And of course, the culture at that time was that a woman marries and she is taken to the husband's family home and she's expected to please her in-laws and her husband and to be, um, you know, pretty much a slave in many ways as if we would look at it from our culture. And so the Buddha arrived, this woman had been really throwing a fit and the family was not happy. And she, of course, wasn't happy. And so when the Buddha talked to her about the kinds of wives, he was really, really just uh, describing the state of the culture at the time. It wasn't a teaching that says, oh, these are the ways a wife should be. He was talking about the options that are available in this very hierarchical, sexist, patriarchal culture. And we know that the Buddha didn't think in these terms in, in general because, after all, he's an arahant, a fully enlightened Buddha. And the way he treated women who went forth from home life into homelessness, into the spiritual life, was to treat them in many ways the same as he did the monks. He would give women the same ordination. He empowered them with a very strong container of vinaya and taught them all the Dhamma and um, acknowledged them for having all the same kinds of powers for spiritual practice and development as men do. So we know that it wasn't coming from a misogynistic or sexist place. He was just saying, this is, this is the way women can be a wife in this culture. You can act like a mother, you can act like a sister, you can, you can act like a friend uh, to your husband. 
or you can be a servant, and so on. He described these different ways. But he was pointing out to her that if she chooses the position of, of being angry and rebellious and um, miserable, she's going to feel miserable. And so she, um, she said, okay, you can assume that I'm going to be a servant. She's going to like, you know, hopefully it got better than that eventually. But just to say like, this is not intended for us to say, okay, I'm a woman. I have to take this kind of position in the world. We're not in the same world, at least in, in some parts, in some places. The opportunities for women are much less available. But, you know, when we when we move, when we take this tradition, and of course, you know, as a bhikkhuni, I really get an opportunity to practice with this. I take this tradition and these teachings from 2,500 years ago and bring them to life in a much more egalitarian culture where women are... Um, really gaining the opportunity to bring forward their wisdom, their skills, their, um, you know, abilities much more into the culture and the culture benefits from. So that's the thing I would say. We, we, we are um, all conditioned according to gender roles, male and female. There are positive and negative things about it. Women have strengths, certain strengths. Men have certain strengths. And, and we're also seeing um, many more kind of options in between that people are resonating with. Why take the specific position of being female or being male? Some people are, you know, there's more exploration in this area. The most important thing is, as you know, you're pointing out values. What are our values? Um, are our values, as you know, Jerry was saying, his value is his religion. You know, I, I take that to mean the principles of, of honesty and truth, of moral integrity, of kindness and generosity, of compassion. Um, you know, this is, this is what we, we all have the opportunity for, especially in um, a culture that acknowledges the, that women should be protected from violence and oppression, and so should everyone. And so it's, um, I hope that answers your question. And, you know, uh, I think it's important that we live the life that we want to promote so as a bhikkhuni, as you know, there are, there are um, uh, many groups and individuals who do not uh, respect this uh, ordination. You know, they, they, they want to block it because they really want the, the patriarchy to be held firm and highest and say that, you know, this isn't a, a possible or acceptable. 
But there are many people who support that. If you want to create the opportunity for women to live as fully ordained nuns, then do it yourself and make that happen. Live it and it becomes an established, acceptable practice. So in, then we can apply that in other areas. You know, be the kind of wife you feel is important to be, to have that model in the world if we want to be in a relationship, the one where there's respect for everyone, something like that. How does that land with you, Sharanya? Um, thank you. That's really helpful because I think uh, the important piece is the culture. And I think a lot of what the Buddha said, he was speaking to the culture and the people there. But I also understand that the culture is actually pretty still just as strong. So when Buddha read that, um, you know, read the different roles of women, um, it was actually modeled for me growing up and it's still being modeled for me, right? But then of course, I'm in a different country and I'm doing things very differently from all of these women who have modeled that for me. So it's, it's just an interesting journey to navigate. So thank you. That was very helpful. You're welcome. And, and this question of roles is not um, separate from our environmental um, reality and how we can address it. We live according to our values and we create the opportunity for others to do the same and we make a difference. Lynn? Yeah, I guess when um, some of the things that I value the most are, are concord and peace and you know, I think that comes from being a little conflict averse, but also a need for safety. And um, I guess the last things you were saying made me think of, you know, the, the, I guess the point of practice then becomes how do you deal with conflict and how do you um, be able to meet it with equanimity and respect and opportunity maybe to grow and to, to um, understand things in a different way. I know you've lived in a lot of different communities and I'm sure there's been opportunities even in the <laughs> monastic life to deal with conflict, but you know, either there or in the larger world, if you have some wisdom. <laughs> well, um, one of our neighbors, so we live in the mountains, uh, as you may know, and it's, uh, it's like the Wild West out here um, in some ways. And one of our neighbors stopped by a couple of days ago, and he said to us, well, you're the chanting masters, uh, you're the ones who, you know, put out this, this good energy, please chant for concord, please chant for unity. He said, I don't care 
about whether people are liberal or conservative. We need unity. And that's what, you know, please put, put the energy out for that to happen. And, you know, it's true that um, this is one of the ways that we address conflict. You know, that, that, we, that we try to look at things from the position of this is our problem. It's not you on one side and me on the other side. We have to solve this together not just the climate, but even our differences in views so that we're not rejecting each other, that we're trying to understand where each of us is coming from. And of course, sometimes when things are so averse, we have to pull away and walk away and stay safe. It's not like, oh, everything, paint everything rosy. Um, we're, we're looking at some violence and potential for violence. And I have some, we have some friends because they happen to have darker skin who are planning not to go out after the election for a while, see how it's going, you know, because they may be at risk. It's sad that even here in California, in the Bay Area, we have people concerned like this but it's a real, it's a reality. So, you know, we have to be wise in the way that we interact. Um, we have to let wisdom be our guide as to how we respond and, and, and act in situations. Sometimes we have to pull away and avoid the conflict because there's no real benefit to be gained by trying to get in there and mix it up. Sometimes we have to wait for the right time, but not to compromise our values. So when the Buddha talked about compassion, kindness, love, he also talked about wisdom, to be wise in the way that we interact and the, knowing when to, when to be involved and when to walk away and how we can best influence things towards the good. So yes, we have to keep an eye on our um, conflict aversion so that we're not walking away when there's actually an opportunity to make a difference and not just being guided by our feelings of fear or anxiety or aversion, um, but also not being like overcome by, well, I just want to be super magnanimous and always giving and always present and always um, loving. We have to realize that we don't want to commend or support the unwholesome. Sometimes we have to show um, what's needed through firmness or through rejecting, rejecting what's wrong. So it's, it's important that we address what we feel, but we know that we're acting out of wisdom and not just a feeling and not a blind kind of commitment to a certain way of being like, oh, I'm just gonna be accepting of everything. No, that's not Dhamma. We don't accept what's unwholesome and violent and cruel. The Buddha said, when, when thoughts of cruelty 
ill will or sensual desire enter the mind, you abandon them, you reject them. And he was very firm about that. You don't tolerate them, he said. So we have to, you know, use these kinds of more nuanced and and um, deep understanding of things to guide us. We don't have to fight. The Buddhist said, no one, he doesn't argue with anyone but they argue with him. <laughs> so how can we not argue with anyone? Um, and if other people argue, stand firm and calm in truth. Yes, Anne? So um, because we're coming to the end, I just wanted to say a couple of things, um, sort of administratively. Um, but... Um, maybe for people whose pictures are still there, give me a thumbs up if you thought that the breakout room was was helpful to you. Thumbs up if you feel that was something useful. Okay. Got a lot of thumbs up. Some yeah. thumbs up. That's good. Thank you. Um, the other thing I want to say is um, that it's really inspiring to me to, to have two essentially two basic communities come together, but broader communities of people in sanghas all over the U.S. actually. And oh, and apparently internationally. We've heard an, from Canada and Mexico today. Ex exactly. It's, you know, it's just really sweet. It warms my heart. And um, I personally have fantastic appreciation for Karuna Buddhist Vihara for Ayasantusika, um, for the program today and for her, um, just her work in this field of the earth. And I guess the third thing I want to say finally is that um, the, the Australian monk who's, who we're quoting and, and who um, I have brought to our attention is quite a trip. He's a very um, colloquial Australian with a lot, obviously a really deep practice. He was not somebody who's known to most of us. So I would say he's well worth a listen. The first um, talk is a little discouraging, but as he moves through the end of the second talk, which was about love, was one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard about love from a Buddhist teacher. And similarly, his statements, his, his talk about joy is really sweet. All the places we find joy in our lives. So I would strongly um, concur with Aya's recommendation for those talks. So thank you all. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for um, initiating this meeting and for um, being such a supportive guide and host for it. And I, I agree so well, so much with what you've said about uh, the value of coming together um, across groups and and deepening our conversation about the environment, the the other influences and and circumstances we're dealing with, we we can go beyond the platitudes and really dig into how can we be genuinely with this and with each other and. Uh, go forward in a way that strengthens us 
we strengthen each other, strengthen our practice, strengthen our awakening, and hopefully uh, have a good result with regard to how we, um, you know, affect others and um, influence the direction of, of our society. Yeah. Yes, the, the monk is uh, Bhante Sujato, who I think you know, Lynn, and uh, the reference is in the chat window for how to find his series, which is supported by Buddhist Insights. I don't know if you know of that group. And they were in New York City and Rockaway, where uh, many of us uh, monastics gave uh, teachings, have given teachings there. there objective is to bring monastics to New York City and the greater area. Now they're relocated in a beautiful old Christian monastery that they, that they now um, own, and that's in New Jersey, but they are quite the force, quite the young punk force um, uh, in, in, our, in our Buddhist monastic uh, tradition. <laughs> can see the face of it changing and uh, really um, encouraging this kind of thing. So, you know, even the, the title life hacks for the end of the world, you know, the next generation is taking its step forward into how we address this, um, these issues and life. So it's, uh, it's great to see this happening. Great to see all of you here. And we will make our efforts to make this recording available on uh, our, our website and perhaps even on the IMC website. We'll see how that goes. And we also hope to have future meetings on this topic, but it will probably be next year as I'm going into retreat soon and uh, get a little recharge. <laughs> so I think we, we've got like three more minutes. If, you, if anyone wants to make any last comments, Feel free to jump in. Did you want to say something, Jerry? Um, I can talk a lot, but I'll try not to, except to say a big thank you to everybody. Uh, it was amazing. I, um, uh, I, I feel uh, charged up. <laughs> And uh, uh, new to continue trying to bring more kindness to the world and lead people further along and being aware of the world's problems, but trying to uh, not be overcome with them, but try to make each and every one of us responsible for trying to make it a better place in terms of climate and other things, including COVID. Yeah, thank you. Can we finish with a chant for unity? Yeah. Mm. 
Yes, I think so. Um, I think I'll just do a simple blessing. And as we listen to this simple blessing chant and bringing to our mind the wish for all of us to have the blessings of the triple gem. You don't have to be Buddhist for this. Um, every human being has this integrity within them and may it shine forth and, and be a, a positive influence in the world. May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you. By the power of all the Buddhas, may you ever be well. May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you. By the power of all the Dhamma, may you ever be well. May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you. By the power of all the Sangha, May you ever be well. All right. I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful week, a wonderful rest of the year. Tomorrow we will be celebrating. Well, celebrating isn't quite the right word. Honoring the Day of the Dead. Andy's going to give us a cultural guide um, uh, to the, the way that's held in Mexico. And we will be talking about the Dhamma of that uh, observation. And we'll be really looking at how we can come alive in our reflection on death. So that's 5 p.m. tomorrow. And if you want to prepare, watch the movie Coco. So take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.